Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online professional training program optimized for audio engineers. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by Tim Perry, who is the founder and acoustic designer of Arkin Sonic. Tim, thanks for being on Sound Design Live. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. So I definitely want to talk to you about room design and room treatment and sustainable architecture. But first of all, what is your number one favorite song for listening tests? And you can't say peak noise. I don't know, maybe like Thin Air by Don Ross. Or something heavier if it's being used for more modern production. Um, Something like maybe Opeth Deliverance. All right, so Tim, last time you and I talked, we left off with trying to create, or we were talking about reflection-free zone. So let's pick up where we left off, because I know you wanted to explain that a little bit. I guess after you've set up your speakers and your listening position, the, the kind of second priority and the most bang for your buck in terms of acoustic treatment is to treat your first reflection points. And I'll explain why you want to do that and how you'd actually do it. So is that something that you guys talk about much, reflection points in in the sound design? We definitely talk about reflections in rooms. Uh, I mean, our whole job as sound engineers is to get, to safely deliver waveforms from to instruments and to microphones and then from speakers into people's ears. And there are all kind of things that can go wrong in between speakers and ears. And a lot of those are reflections from walls and the environment. And When you're listening to music in a room, obviously you have a blend of the speaker sound and your room sound. So what you actually perceive is one sound that's multiple mashed together. You have You have the direct sound coming from your speakers and then you have early reflections bouncing off um, walls, floor, ceiling, and your console and whatever furniture you have. Okay. And then you have, of course, late reflections, which in a larger room, that's what, that's what merges into what you hear is reverberation. In terms of what messes up your imaging most, early reflections are, are the biggest problem in, in, in a listening room they're the first reflections you hear after about 80 milliseconds, and they're vitally important in, a, in like a recording room because they give you cues about how big the room is and your location relative to the walls mm-hmm. and the floor and ceiling. But when you're listening to media through speakers, if they arrive too soon, they can cause comb filtering and completely throw off your imaging or mass details or color the sound you hear at the mix position. Okay, so you don't want no reflections because that would just sound like, I guess, an anechoic chamber and would be really feel really weird. But you don't want too many reflections because then it just sounds messy. Yeah, well, you can, and we can get really specific um, in terms of what ones are good and what ones are bad. So I like to think of it like this. So imagine you're like listening to a recording of two acoustic guitarists um, and they were recorded in some amazing auditorium with like the best acoustics ever, right? And you want to you want to preserve those recorded acoustics. So during playback through your speakers, you want to perceive that original space where they're recorded so it feels like you're listening live in person. And to make this work, the first reflections 
in your that you hear in your playback room should be those ones that were recorded in the other room, not the ones caused by your playback or your mixing room. And you see a problem with this because um, how do we reproduce those reflections of like a recorded guitarist in an auditorium when our playback room is smaller than the room they're recorded in? To make it work, we need to suppress the playback room reflections by creating what's called a reflection-free zone. And this is this is kind of the keystone or the key element of acoustic treatment to get a good soundstage. And there's two ways to do it. I'm sure you've seen purpose-built control rooms with angled walls, right? Yes. No 90-degree angles or something, right? They're built with a splayed kind of skeleton. Uh, inner shell so that the walls around you, they, they kind of angle all the reflections backwards. So the, the angles will uh, depend, but right. that type of geometry is common in purpose-built rooms, but of course it's expensive to do. It has the advantage of it. It keeps liveliness until and gives the reflections a nice long travel path. But what, what all the tip I'll give, um, because it's relevant to anyone with a few hundred bucks lying around, is how to actually, the second method is to add acoustic treatment to your first reflection points, obviously. So we'll look at how to find those points and and which ones actually need treatment is the key. Have you heard of the mirror technique? If you can see a speaker's reflection in the mirror, then that is a reflection point. Is that what it is? Yeah, you, you got it. If you're sitting in the listening position and you can see a speaker's reflection in the mirror, that's the reflection point. It's kind of visual, so it's probably best to look up online um, how to do it. And that's pretty common knowledge, but once you actually find those points, the big question I'm always asking is which ones need to be treated? Because they don't necessarily all need to be treated. And to determine which ones do need to be treated, I like to relate this reflection-free zone to two concepts in psychoacoustics. So we have the initial signal delay gap or the initial time delay gap. And then we have the Hass effect or the precedence effect, which is probably familiar to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The initial signal delay gap, um, it's more intuitive and people rarely talk about it. People always talk about the Hass effect and they rarely talk about this in my observations. So let's look at it first. It applies to all kinds of rooms, to control rooms, performance spaces, and even to digital reverbs so it kind of you can kind of use it to tie them all together and relate them all. So in first in a listening or a mixing room, the initial signal delay gap is is just the delay between the direct sound you hear from your speakers and um, the first reflection that is caused by your room. But there's a secret insight. We can get really specific on the number. Most of the world class performance spaces, specifically. Uh, this is mainly concert halls, but it applies somewhat to smaller spaces too. They have initial signal delay gap values between 12 and 25 milliseconds. And in the highest rated halls, it's 20 milliseconds. Whereas halls that have much longer gaps than this don't rate highly because they lack intimacy. Interesting. So, so we can basically ignore those, those ones that have really long gaps and say, we don't care about you because you lack intimacy and we're not even going to bother designing for you. And or just it's not practical to design for those. And then use that 20 millisecond insight 
when creating a reflection-free zone in your playback room. So let's say, do you want to mix or master recordings made in the best, the, the finest rated performance spaces? Yes. Th yes, then you create a <laughs> reflection-free zone with initial signal delay gap of 20 milliseconds. And okay. how do we actually do that in real life? Because, well, we know, what is it? Sound travels 11, 25 feet per second, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, uh, what, 22 feet in 20 milliseconds. And that means that after the, dir the direct sound passes your ear in your listening room, you need to either A, treat it, or B, you let it travel an extra 22 feet somehow before it returns to your ears as a first reflection. And this somehow is the question we want to answer. So here's an example. The easiest way to do it is, let's say, absorb your sidewalls reflections because let's say they're too close to provide that delay and and apply absorption on your ceiling reflection points too and then use a diffusive rear wall to create this gap if you have enough space behind you so you can provide that 20 millisecond initial signal delay gap by sitting 11 feet from your rear wall rear wall and adding diffusers at the rear wall mm, okay how many feet do you have behind you in your in my room right now? Yeah. I think I have more than 10 feet. Cool. Yeah. You're, you're good to go. A lot of people don't have that kind of space behind them. Yeah. Um, which is the reality of, of small rooms. So that's, that's where we come to the Hass effect. You can okay. still create your reflection-free zone if you use the Hass effect. And I know most, most or a lot of sound design guys and audio engineers would be familiar with it. But in terms of, let's look at in terms of acoustics, Hass effect would tell us that if a reflection, let's say it's af, off your sidewall, if it arrives too soon after the, after the direct sound you hear from your speakers, the reflection is going to throw off your imaging and it's going to cause comb filtering, which reduces clarity and causes, changes the frequency content. Mm -hmm. So causes coloration at the mixed position. So how soon is too soon we said it was we said 20 milliseconds was maybe a nice sweet spot mm -hmm. in terms of a cutoff i'll say 15 milliseconds that's according to studies done by the european broadcasting union and they recommend if a reflection arrives earlier than 15 milliseconds relative to the direct sound you should treat it so it's at least 10 db below the direct sound 15 db is even better and that's what is that? That's for all frequencies from one to eight kilohertz. Okay, so if I've got a speaker against a wall, for example, in a performance space, and it's just aimed in such a way that there's definitely going to be some first reflection from that wall that it's against, then I can almost be 100% sure that I need to treat that because the reflection, it's only going to travel maybe a foot to the wall before it bounces off the wall and heads over towards my head and that's probably going to be less than 15 milliseconds. Yeah, you definitely got to treat that um, unless the wall is angled so it's deflected. Right, okay. But in terms of, um, terms of reflections that arrive outside that window, let's say one arrives 20 milliseconds after the, the direct sound, so maybe that could be a rear wall reflection that's, that's at 11 feet away. You don't necessarily have to treat it because it's not going to kill your imaging. 
And that's due the, to the precedence effect where the direct sound and the reflection, they become perceptually fused uh, in, in a certain time window. I think it's 15 to 25 milliseconds or something, but it depends on the actual content uh, w of the sound source. Mm -hmm. And they'll sound like a single sounds, so you can correctly localize them in your soundstage. And it's going to be quieter when it get, gets back to me, too. It's not going to be the same level as when it went, came out of the speaker. or Exactly. Okay. So that, that, delay, that delay causes the, the 10 or 15 dB in reduction. And, and it actually, according to the Hass effect, if we wanted to cause the same interference with a reflection that's delayed that much, we would need to increase it 10 dB in order to ruin the imaging. So okay. that, that delay time effectively, it, it makes us happy and it solves our, our problem with, with masking and, and destruction of the soundstage. So it sounds like so far between 15 and 20 milliseconds is really the sweet spot. If it's less than 15, I need to take care of it so that it doesn't get into my ear, absorbing it somehow, getting rid of it. And if it's more than 20 milliseconds, then what? We don't care about it. I mean, we, we do care about it because it is going to create a, a nice diffuse first reflection if we treat it with diffusion. Right. So, okay, you said so that. ideally we would we would diffuse it. You don't necessarily have to, but it's gonna make it's gonna make your entire room sound better and and, and this way you're 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 still not letting your room overpower the the recording. Your room is kind of behaving with it. You you can also completely absorb it as they do in some specialized, in what's called non-environment rooms, where they use a completely absorptive rear wall that's super thick, like a couple feet thick. Huh. But, um, you know, there's, there's different schools of thought, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. The two main schools of thought are reflection-free zone rooms, which is what we're talking about now, and then there's the non-environment style rooms, which provide outstanding clarity but they're a bit drier and and they have they're very hard to design correctly because you need a, a ton a ton of volume you need like several feet worth of treatment otherwise the low frequent otherwise you overabsorb the high frequencies uh -huh. and the low and the low frequencies whereas with a reflection free zone we say between 250 and 4000 hertz we want decay times between 2 and 0 0.2 and 0 0.4 seconds but below that, we know we're going to have low, longer delay uh, decays at at low frequencies. So mm -hmm. we accept accept that reality that we can't completely fix the low frequencies, and to compensate, we're going to let allow there to be a little bit of extra liveliness at high frequencies, so that we we still so that we have some balance in the room. Got it. There's a couple common things I run into for home studios. The most common one is a, a small room. So in this case, um, we know that there's not enough space to create a reflection-free zone. We have nearby reflection points we need to absorb on the sidewalls. So we want to add a minimum, an absolute minimum of three inches of broadband absorption there. And more typically, we'd go thicker. Um, so like four to six inches and what I actually like to do, if a person has the budget and the space, is to use base traps at the first reflection points. If this is a, a critical listening room and this person is doing 
high-end mixing. So full spectrum absorption at the sidewall and, and ceiling first reflection points. And then at the rear wall, same thing for the ceiling, minimum three inch, better to do typical four to six inches. And okay. ide ideal would be like over seven inches. And then the rear wall, if they have the space, if they have, let's say 10 feet, we'll put diffusion there. But here's another key thing that always happens in these small rooms. This is, this is the biggest base problem, actually. It's called base suckout. Um, and that's caused by your rear wall reflection point. It causes a null. So base waves bounce off the rear wall, and then they cancel with the direct sound coming from your speakers. We right. talked about this before. Yeah. So it happens from the front wall, and it also happens at the rear wall, and that causes starts at a lower frequency usually and causes extreme bass suckout. So the way to avoid that, that's another reason to be seated far from your rear wall. And the uh, another way to avoid that, if you don't have the space, is to use thick absorption, like thick absorption. So full spectrum bass trapping down to 50 hertz or lower if you can, or like typical is 12 inches, 12 or 16 inches thick of Roxel safe and sound. And then once we get thicker than that, you can get into more even fluffier, lighter materials. So the thicker the treatment is, the lower density it should be. And uh, whereas okay. the, so if you're say, say you're treating your first reflection points on the sidewall and you can only make them three inches thick, in that case, you want to use something with a bit higher density, like uh, Roxel, like Roxel Rockwool 60, or you could use a product called Bonded Logic Ultra Touch at three inches thick, or you could use Owen Corning 703 or 705. But once you get thicker than that, once we get to like six inches thick, start to look at, at less density, because if something's too dense and you make it too thick, the absorber starts reflecting instead of absorbing interesting due to what's called the gas flow resistivity so at six inches thick we'll often use like two layers of roxel safe and sound which is awesome stuff really economical pr pretty pretty good as as far as sustainability goes okay and then once we get really thick a super chunk trap to prevent that base null i was just talking about so we'd, we'd make what's called a super chunk base trap using like 16 inches or even thicker. Of, wow. So to really cover the, to really get down to these low, low frequencies, density, yeah. it's got to be really thick, 16 inches. Wow. Okay. It's got to be, it's got to be thick or it needs to be spaced away from the wall. It's due to something called the quarter wavelength rule. Or, or it needs to be activating on the... This gets a bit more technical. I've explained this in my base trap placement guide. It either needs to be thick and spaced away or spaced away from the wall, or it needs to be right up against the wall and acting on the pressure of the sound wave. So that gets into the difference between um, different types of base traps. Some act on the velocity of the sound wave, which and those ones behave best at a, a quarter wavelength from the wall they're most efficient and then there's other ones that be that act on the pressure of the sound wave and those ones act best right up against the wall so there's two different types of bass traps and where you place them depends on what type you're using yeah people should know that you have uh 
handful of free, uh, really great references on your site, and it's arqen.com? Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Yeah, so people should check those out. But but um, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up question. So if I wanted to save money, could I just buy thinner material and have a space to the wall? In, in theory, you would think you would think so, yes. According to the theory, that's the case. But in practice, um, what we've found is the thicker, or sorry, the denser materials like Owens Corning 703, they tend to be more expensive. So if you add three inches of Owens Corning, space three inches from the wall, that's a good approach for your sidewall reflections. But it's actually a little bit cheaper and more effective to just do six inches of rock soul safe and sound i've heard of rock wool what's rock soul rock soul is just a brand of oh, okay and safe and sound is great because anyone can get it at their local hardware store in north america in europe the equivalent would be well they have a lot of rock wool products i think rock wool is the company in europe okay whether or not you'll benefit from front wall absorption it's going to depend on a few things mainly the directionality of your speakers or the off-axis response and and how far the speaker is from your wall, as we spoke about with the um, uh, speaker boundary interference in relation to that. And it, it also depends on how your other walls are treated. So if you have no treatment on your rear wall, then you would want treatment on your front wall because uh, you don't want parallel surfaces that are untreated. Okay. But it, but in many cases, the front wall doesn't actually need to be absorptive as most speakers are directional at the higher frequencies. And mm -hmm. for dealing with low frequencies, well, that, that kind of goes back to the speaker boundary interference. Well, yeah, see my guide on that. That's a bit more complicated. Okay, sure. But there's a specific school of thought called live and dead in room, and that calls for a completely absorptive front wall and a lot of people are still kind of go by that school of thought, but but it's been replaced by the more general reflection-free zone concept, which is a much more general concept, and it doesn't say that your front wall has to be absorptive. Okay, that'll save me some money. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, in fact, the other type of control room, the non-environment room, they they have a a reflective or diffusive front wall. And an absorptive rear sidewall, rear wall, sidewalls, and ceiling. So it, it, there's no hard and fast rules. You know, it depends on on a lot of factors. So what else do we want to say about base trapping? Do you want to talk about how? I don't know. Is it too complicated to talk about how to build them and where they should go, and some more principles, or should we just kind of direct people to your guide? They should check out my guide, but I'll, I'll give a couple of general. I'll give a couple quick cheat codes or general tips. In a small room, you really, you generally can't add too many base traps. At least you can't add too many broadband base traps. Whether you can add too many tune base traps is another topic I discuss in my guide. But in terms of broadband base traps that they don't have a resonant frequency, it's it's not practical to overdo it generally in your room. The only time you'd really be overdoing it is if you add so many bass traps that you're over-absorbing all your high frequencies. Have you have you heard a one-note bass? No, what's that? It's it's a kind of a phenomenon when you're you're mixing and every bass note sounds the same regardless of the true pitch. It depends on the room and the room resonance, the room modes in the room and your location in the room relative to the peaks and nulls of those modes. But 
in certain spaces, this can occur. And the first line of attack against this is choosing a good listing position. As we talked about, 38% is a good place to start, but it's better to use uh, acoustic measurements of the frequency response to determine that. Um, and the, another way to, once you have that settled, base absorption or base traps is the second line of attack. They're technically not, they technically don't trap base. So, so the word base trap is a little bit misleading. <laughs> yeah. But it's, what? it's, they absorb it's the it, lingo. Right? Yeah, they absorb it. Okay. It's the lingo people use um, and it, people are familiar with it. Okay. So I don't have a problem using it. Some people take offense to it. So if you're building a, a really high-end room, like a control room or mastering studio, you, you'd want to prepare to sacrifice quite a lot of space for acoustic treatment. And this is for the bass trapping. So your ceiling, there's a ton of space up there. You'd want to utilize that. And to give you an example of how much space is taken up in some of these really high-end rooms, in a high-end high room with a floor area of under 500 square feet, if you really were anal, you would want to use like 50% of the room's volume for treatment to oh, achieve, wow. <laughs> achieve a neutral sound. If you're really anal. <laughs> and, and with a room between like 500 and 1,000 square feet, it would be reduced to maybe 30 or 40% of the room's volume. So in larger rooms, you need less percentage of the room's volume. And also you can potentially use less space if you incorporate high-quality tuned or, or they're called pressure base traps and these act on lower frequencies down to like oh. 50 hertz so you don't need as much volume to deal with lower frequencies Sounds fancy but but let's say for your average person who's just doing mixing in a spare room in their house it's not practical for like most mortal people to fill half the room with bass traps right, right? <laughs> so so in this case you're not concerned about world, world, world class acoustics. That's that's cool. <laughs> not not most people can't be. So right. a cheat code here is to cover twenty two to twenty five percent of the interior surface area with acoustic treatment, and this would be your total coverage provided by base traps, absorption, and diffusers. Okay. So so the way you allocate that, you start with your first reflection points, then you'd go to the base traps. And then you would go to the um, diffusers and the and treating the parallel walls so that you don't so that you don't have large areas of parallel walls. Okay, that makes sense. So Tim, all this stuff that we've been talking about so far, I feel like I'm just assuming can be expanded out into performance spaces and uh, larger, you know, listening rooms, concert halls. Are there anything, is there anything that we've been talking about so far that can't be used in those rooms? And what are some of the, I guess, more common treatments that you see in those rooms? The three types of recording rooms I think about are, there's a, a neutral room, uh, and then there's more live rooms, and we can separate those into two types and everything in between. Two types of live rooms would be what I call a reverberant room and a bright room. Okay. And this, this kind of stuff is um, a lot of people don't know about different types of live rooms. So this is pretty interesting stuff. So I'll be really quick with a neutral room first. Um, it's kind of self-explanatory. This is a room that doesn't impart much of its characteristic onto the sound. 
So it it's designed to highlight the natural sound of the instruments played into it, not too live, not too dead, even frequency response. Um, the problem is to make the musicians comfortable. It's important not to make these rooms too sterile, of course, like an anechoic chamber, right? Mm -hmm. In a large space, the room modes tend to be more evenly distributed okay. across the frequency spectrum. Well, in a small room, they're unevenly spaced, and this causes all these peaks and nulls in the frequency response. And also, in a small room, the reflections, they, they occur early, so they cause more coloration than in a larger room where you have later occurring reflections, which cause less coloration. So it's easier to make a large room sound neutral. And the typical characteristics of how to make a large room sound neutral is lots of bass absorption. They typically would build it into the interior walls. So we have what's called in interior acoustic control walls. They're, they're like in interior walls inside the isolation walls. Oh, cool. That, that that provide treatment. Another big, huge difference between a uh, recording space and a uh, listening space is you usually want irregular shaped rooms for recording space, not necessarily symmetrical, and it can be really wacky shaped. This tends to give the low frequency response, tends to make it more even because it doesn't support the strongest modes, which are called axial modes. It doesn't let them build up between parallel surfaces. So if you have non-parallel surfaces, those large those modes are largely eliminated and your echo flutter echo problems are are less likely to occur. And also these irregular shaped rooms, they provide smoother reverberation characteristic with fewer kind of frequencies that stand out. So that would make me think that in that in those kind of rooms where you want uh, more kind of random complex reflections that you would want the same thing in a concert hall but so often concert halls are kind of shoebox shaped well i don't know how often but it seems like in a lot of cases they are symmetrical and shoebox shaped but when you want a concert hall to have complex reflections and well so shouldn't it be crazy shaped well you you would think that in theory a lot of, a lot of the best concert halls they do find have shoebox shapes um I think one of the reasons is those were designed a long time ago, whereas the more modern ones aren't necessarily shoebox shaped because they have more modern optimization techniques. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the concert halls, and we'll get into that in a minute, the concert halls are, they want to give us an even, an even experience for everyone in the audience, right? As even as possible. So that's one of the reasons you have more sy symmetrical left-right symmetry in concert halls and ah, in performance okay. spaces, definitely. Whereas you don't have, you don't need left-right symmetry in these recording rooms. There's a book. It's called Recording Studio Design by um, Philip Newell, and it goes into these rooms in a bit more detail. But I'll give a really quick summary. Okay. So in in Europe, it's common to see stone rooms, and we kind of kind of view the two different live rooms in context with these stone rooms. So there's bright rooms, there's reverberant rooms, and there's everything that falls in between. And a reverberant room, it can be used to create really powerful kind of drum recordings, um, acoustic instrument recordings, even mm, electric okay. guitars. And it, I get one thing I've heard it excel on is, is bagpipes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Anyway, so so this is a spatially rich sounding room with smooth decay and doesn't have excessive low frequencies. And it'll have a long reverb time. Um, so maybe even like three seconds when empty, less when occupied because humans increase the absorption okay. in the room. So think of like a, a castle dungeon with with all hard surfaces, yeah. all stones, right? Yeah. So in reality, they'd often add some low frequency absorption, but the key to this type of room, it's reflective on all surfaces um, and it uses slightly irregular stones to create diffusive sound field at, at like higher frequencies, maybe above 3000 Hertz. But below that, it's characterized by specular reflections and a long reverberation time. So that's one type of specific live room that lends itself to specific cases like getting a, a huge drum sound. Cool. And that is in contrast to the other, another type of live room, which is the bright room. And it's great for adding richness to woodwinds or like emphasizing the harmonics of guitar and other plucked string instruments. It's great for strings and it's a bit more versatile overall. So in this case, we would still have the same dungeon filled with stones, but the stones are way more irregular and they're they're sticking out dramatically as if the room was like built by a, a kid playing with blocks. <laughs> or even the room could be built using like uneven stacks of firewood, if you could imagine that. So this is a bright room and it's characterized by diffusion galore. So instead of specular reflections, the walls, they scatter sound over most of the frequencies uh, spectrum, mm -hmm. maybe starting at 500 hertz up. And you'll get less reverberation time in this. It'll, you'll still have a, a nice, nice sound field texture and nice reverberation, but you get less reverberation time because the indentations between the stones create some absorption. So all those, all those irregularities add some absorption. So in a practical context, of course, you can create that type of space using diffusers, like commercial off-the-shelf off the diffusers. And, um, and in, in practice, in terms of creating versatile performance spaces, you can do anything in between the two. You can have a neutral room and you can brighten it up by adding diffusers. So there's all types of possible rooms, but these are the kind of the three main types. And I guess the fourth would be a room with variable acoustics. Where oh. you can actually, maybe you have things in the wall that can be rotated and on one side they have a certain type of treatment and on another side they have maybe absorption on one side, diffusion on the other and reflective on the third side. What are some of the most common problems that you're called in to solve are problems that you see, you know, things we can be aware of that we can have control over in our spaces to, to make them better? Okay, this is good because this is not something um, that's talked about very much online in terms of room acoustics is concert hall acoustics. So this was the f my first exposure to acoustics was concert hall acoustics. So there's, there's what's called the 20% the rule. This rule says if you have a room that sounds too lively, you make just 20% of the total surface area absorptive, it'll effectively kill the reverberation. Enough. Or, that, like, yeah, that's enough. enough. Okay. Yeah. Or on the, on the other end, if you have a room that sounds too dead, you add 20% reflective or diffusive material, 
that'll bring the room to life enough. So, so balance it out and bring it to life. And um, in a larger room, maybe not a concert hall, but a, a larger uh, kind of a mid-sized performance space or, or a large domestic-sized room with modal problems, if you cover 20% of the surface area with diffusers, it can make the room sound more neutral. So there's something about that 20% hack that that works in a lot of cases. But we'll be more more specific with with the big rooms. Take a look online at at like RT60 or reverberation charts. They have guidelines for you know what what's the space used for and what the volume is. Okay. And you can just look at one of these charts and kind of match up the optimal an optimal range of reverberation times for that room, that specific application. Okay. Another obvious hack is parallel surfaces. So get rid you, of them. Yeah. You you see flood. You want to prevent flutter and slap echo. Echo. You add absorption or diffusion um, to these any bare, large bare spaces of parallel surfaces. And whether you add absorption or diffusion will depend on. The reverberation time. So, if you want to, if you want to reduce the liveliness of the space to achieve the ideal reverberation time, you'd add more absorption. Whereas, if you want to preserve the liveliness, you'd add more diffusion. So let's just think about the initial signal delay gap we talked about before. Okay, that's a huge metric. So, we said the best halls have it between what 20, 12 and twenty-five milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And twenty is the sweet spot, right? You can use that insight when you're designing a room for scratch. Or if you're just using a space that's that's already there, you can use that insight when you're choosing where to place performers relative to the audience or where to set up mics for recording, right? Mm-hmm. So you know that you know you want to avoid having too long an initial signal delay gap. So if you if you create a scenario where there's a 50 millisecond gap, it's probably going to sound not intimate enough for the audience. And if you do it 12 to 25 milliseconds, that's a great scenario where you can have a room that sounds lively but still intimate at the mm-hmm. same time if you stick within that that range. I'm curious if I can hire you to help me solve problems in my space just by sending you some photos and getting a consultation over the phone, or do you need to actually fly down and take measurements to really do any good and help me? I actually do do um, a lot of cons- consultations remotely. Okay. So in these cases... I'll often use a simulation software or I'll have a client measure the room using Room EQ Wizard, which is free software and and easy to use. What's Room EQ Wizard do? You can use it to, it just sends out an excitation signal and you can use it to measure, it measures the impulse response of your room, but you can use that to get all kinds of data, um, like the frequency response, the, the approximate the room modes, the reverberation times, in your room, and you can use, uh, I guess, any small diaphragm omnidirectional with a fairly flat frequency response. You can use as a measurement mic to do that. Tell me some things that I should be considering when building or making improvements to a recording studio or performance space with sustainable architecture in mind. Noise control, it's, it's actually the biggest problem in the green building industry. Why? Well, gr- green buildings, they, they provide better comfort or better user experience in every measure of comfort, air oh, wow. quality, thermal comfort, visual appeal, except acoustics. And the reason is, 
partly because of poor soundproofing because they use light lightweight materials with poor sound insulation. And then it's also, they tend to use an open plan, open plan designs. So they have lots of reflective surfaces like glass and wood, but they don't use much interior treatment because they're trying to minimize materials. So you have common example is open plan classrooms where kids can't hear the teacher uh. speak. Anyway, but when you're doing a renovation to a studio, a lot of this applies too. When you're choosing materials, there's there's all kinds of benefits to sustainable materials aside from the sustainable element. So here here are a couple kind of thoughts when choosing materials. Where, where possible, it would be recycled or regionally sourced or biodegradable or naturally abundant or rapidly renewable. And they have products that are what's called LEED certified. Um, it's a safe way to go if a product's LEED certified. How do you and spell LEED? L-E-E-D. Okay. And these can actually be used to help buildings earn points toward what's called LEED certification. But a lot of smaller companies haven't gone through the certification process, but they still might make amazing stuff that's just as suitable. Okay. So so don't don't get stuck in that box. You can kind of evaluate it using your head and, and just just considering like wood from sustainably harvested forests is better. Okay. Um, bamboo is rapidly renewable resource, but locally harvested wood is generally actually more sustainable than bamboo shipped from Asia. Okay. And then absorption materials they should be here. Here's a key: they should be non-toxic and they should provide high air quality. So that's a huge thing in studios. I recently read a study. Um, they observed a huge increase in productivity. I think it maybe was even a doubling in productivity. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay. in, in green buildings where they have a clean air environment. Oh, yeah. Ex excellent ventilation. That totally so, makes sense. Yeah. So, so a couple example materials, absorptive materials would be like recycled co cotton insulation is great. Mm -hmm. An example of this is Ultra Touch by Bonded Logic. Uh, one problem with it is it's it's floppy, so it's not great for panels unless it's framed, and it doesn't work well for base traps because, as we talked about, um, it's it's very dense. It has, or sorry, it has a high what's called gas flow resistivity. So if you make it too thick, it starts to reflect low frequencies. But anyway, natural fibers like hemp and wool are are great. Hemp tends to have great acoustic performance and insect resistance. So it's kind of one ah. of those super materials. And then there's, there's, it's expensive though. So there's Rockwell products um, by like Roxel and I think a company called Nuff makes them K-N-U-F-F, which are pretty good in this regard too, um, in terms of the kind of they're safe, reasonably safe, they provide good air quality and they're reasonably just i don't I, I don't want to use the word sustainable but they're reasonably <laughs> in, environmentally friendly yeah okay in my mind one of the worst materials to use for something like diffusers but it's still used all the time is is cheap plastics right because here's a big thing because people don't care about stuff made of plastic it eventually maybe after 20 years it'll just become garbage and it will take like however many, I don't know, tens of thousands of years to biodegrade. Oh, Whereas wow. if, if it's made from beautiful wood, 
a the wood is tends to be a more sustainable material and it will biodegrade faster and it it's it holds carbon so it it's a it's a carbon sink which is is good but also it just because it appears to be higher quality people care about it more and they're less likely to toss it you know so tim i you've given us so much good information here today where is the best place for people to follow your work online arken.com which is arqen.com okay is the best place and i think most of the advice i'm putting in a in a acoustics 101 section on my site right now well tim thank you so much for being on sound design live my pleasure sound design live.